It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Joe Biden's inauguration as U.S. president has opened up opportunities and challenges for Boris Johnson as he seeks to build a relationship with the new occupant of the Oval Office. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested, and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. Not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at what the new US president means for the UK, what he has in common with Mr. Johnson, past differences on Brexit, and what shared policy aims the two leaders have. Political editor George Parker and chief foreign affairs commentator Gideon Rackman will explore. And later, we'll return to Brexit three weeks after the deal was done. How has it changed trading relations? Has there been disruption in Northern Ireland? And how are businesses coping with the new regime? Public policy editor Peter Foster and special guest Anna Yazedska, director of the Trade and Borders Consultancy, will explain what's been happening. George and Gideon, welcome back. Thanks, Seb. Thanks. Well, the inauguration is something we were all glued to our TV screens watching this week, and it was quite the spectacle. Obviously, there weren't that many people on the Great Mall watching it, lots of flags instead, but all Hollywood glam and celebrity out there. I have to ask you both, what were your highlights? Gideon, what did you make of it all? I was oddly moved. I mean, I tried to sort of retain a certain detachment, but I mean, I initially just an immense sense of relief, to be honest, almost a kind of physical sense of relief. And in terms of favourite moments, mine was a slightly small one, I suppose, in the great scheme of things. It was the sight of Kamala Harris walking Mike Pence to his car and Pence, you know, being the grown up who'd actually turned up at the inauguration and the obvious rapport between the two who are very far apart on the political spectrum. But it was kind of a sense that some kind of common humanity and maybe bipartisanship could yet be rescued from this situation. What my personal highlight was when we saw Bruce Springsteen performing on the steps outside the Lincoln Memorial. The boss has been very involved with democratic politics for many years there. And it was not the kind of raucous concert he would normally have, but it was him just solo with a guitar singing his song Land of Hope and Dreams. And I felt it was a very moving moment and completely fitted the atmosphere of it. George, what was your moment? Well, I think I'd choose a different musical moment, but it wasn't actually from the inauguration, Seb. It was from the Andrews Air Force bases. Donald Trump's plane took off the sounds of YMCA. And it just seemed to sum up the whole, as Gideon was saying, the sense of relief that this whole vaudeville show, this grotesque period of American democracy was over. And I see the village people, by the way, have been protesting for some time about his use of their song. I think they summed up. They said, since he's a bully, our request was ignored and now he's gone. I've still never quite got to the bottom of why Trump has that connection with YMCA, <laughs> but it's something we don't have to ponder for much longer since he's now left office. But let's dive into the main topic of the week. 
Boris Johnson and Joe Biden aren't the most natural of bedfellows, not least as the pair have clashed about the UK decision to leave the EU. The new US president said last year he saw the prime minister as a physical and emotional clone of his foe, Donald Trump. This difference in character was highlighted when Mr. Johnson was asked by Sky News this week whether he thought the new president was woke, a reference to his social justice agenda. The prime minister was eager to smooth over the question and stress the bonds the two leaders share. I can't comment on that. But what I know is that he's a fervent believer in the transatlantic uh, alliance. And so far as nothing wrong being being woke, but what I can tell you is that uh, I think that it's it's very, very important for everybody uh, to stick up for your uh, your history, your, your, your traditions and uh, thing and your, your your values. Well, Gideon, let's just begin with the inauguration. As we were saying there, obviously, it felt in some ways like a return to normality, particularly with Mr. Biden's reference there about re-engaging with allies and all the signs we've seen so far that we've gone from the Trump America first view of the world to a much more mainstream, normal set of how you do diplomacy. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is probably the biggest single difference. I think the Biden administration looking around the world, looking at the challenges they face, particularly with China, but also global challenges such as climate change and so on, think that America can't do this alone, that it needs a strong set of alliances. And in fact, alliances are a unique American asset. America has a huge network of them. China has one formal treaty ally, which is North Korea. And so why not use them and work together? Whether they move towards this alliance of democracies that they've been talking about is a slightly open question. But Boris Johnson is making a move in that direction for them by expanding the G7 summit into what's now known as the D10, inviting South Korea, Australia and India as well. So I think there's a joint project there emerging, which is to strengthen the network of the world's democracies. Well, George, the arrival of President Biden has been a slightly tricky one for Downing Street this week because Boris Johnson, many see him as someone who cozied up to Donald Trump. Now, of course, his allies say that the UK Prime Minister always has to work with the US president there. And there's obviously been times when the pair have already distanced themselves. I think the Black Lives Matter protests were one example of that. But there's all these clips that have been played over and over again this week when Boris Johnson called on Donald Trump to get the Nobel Peace Prize when he said, we don't need the Iran deal, we need the Trump deal with Iran. Um, So he's been in a pretty uncomfortable situation. And those comments that Joe Biden made about Boris Johnson in the past don't put things on a good place to start. They couldn't really be off to a much worse start, could they? And the fact that Joe Biden has never met Boris Johnson but seems to have formed a fairly unfavourable impression of him already is not great. On the other hand, I think we have to put a massive caveat here. Basically, as Gideon's just outlined, the, the two countries have a massive shared agenda, don't they? Militarily, historically, culturally, commercially. It's a very strong and enduring relationship. And in the end, events and necessity forces the occupants of number 10 and the White House together, as you say. And we have rehearsed all the disagreements in the past, whether it's Boris Johnson referring to Barack Obama's part Kenyan heritage or very profound disagreements about Brexit, which obviously Joe Biden regards as a massive strategic mistake on the part of the UK. But I think the two of them will, by necessity, work together. And who knows, events could forge quite a strong partnership between the two of them. And it's to the Prime Minister's great advantage that he's hosting this year two big international events. 
the G7 summit, which, as Gideon said, they're going to expand. And then in November, Johnson's hosting the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Summit. And in both of those events, it's an opportunity not just for Britain to work with America, but also to show that the multilateral system is alive and well, and Joe Biden should help him on that. So in a year which is absolutely crucial for Boris Johnson in terms of repositioning Britain on the world stage after Brexit, it's to his advantage that he's working with a president who frankly wants the international order and democracy to work. And I think that puts the relationship actually on quite a sound footing. Well, it is pretty fortuitous, Gideon, the fact that Joe Biden is going to be visiting the UK twice in 2021 because the UK has been stuck in the morass of Brexit and having to cut ties in some respect with Brussels and this question about global Britain, what does it actually mean? But these two big summits obviously are going to be an opportunity for Boris Johnson to show off his internationalism and his credentials working with other countries here. Do you think the Biden lot will accept that or are they just going to still always see him as this kind of proto-Trump clone? I don't think in the end it's about what they personally think of Boris Johnson. They may, looking back at the past, see him as somebody who was closely associated with Trump, that Brexit and Trump were events that happened in the same year, that there were emotional, philosophical links, if you like. But they're pragmatists and they're now going to move forward. And I think their relationship to Johnson will be conditioned by what Britain can do for them. Which is an interesting question, because, as I suggested earlier, there's an increasing focus in Washington on rallying a kind of informal anti-China alliance. And the Americans have been taken aback by the fact that the EU signed a China trade deal before Biden was even there. That, in a sense, has made them look again at London as a possible partnership. The big problem initially for Johnson was not personal dislike, but that the Americans looked across the Atlantic and said, OK, well, obviously the EU is the big partner here and Britain is much less relevant now. Seen through the China lens, Britain suddenly looks like potentially a helpful partner, particularly since the Brits have ties to Australia, to India, to Canada, other countries that also take a slightly more sceptical view of China. But that then raises a big tactical question for Britain, which is how far do we want to go down this route with America in confronting China? Because it could have costs associated with it, trade costs. You know, part of global Britain is trying to build a relationship with the emerging powers of Asia, and China is the biggest economy out there. Are we prepared to head towards what I think a lot of people in Washington now do see as a new Cold War emerging Or do we want to take a step back and say, you know what, that actually has too many costs associated with it? Well, Boris Johnson's views of China, George, are particularly interesting that he's been very quick to pour cold water over the golden age of Anglo-Sino relations that was helded by George Osborne and David Cameron. And on many areas, the UK has toughened up its approach, but we're still waiting for this big integrated review into the UK's foreign policy. And this is going to be the crucial document about where we see Boris Johnson landing up here. We speak to people in Downing Street and the Prime Minister eagerly tells them, I'm not soft on China. I don't know why people think I'm soft on China. So there's another opportunity for Biden and Johnson to work together. Yeah, it's fascinating, as Gideon was just describing there, the way that the graphs have crossed in terms of the UK and the EU's approach to China. And I was on a trip to China with George Osman, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, where 
unbelievably, looking back on it, we went to Xinjiang. I think George Osborne was only the second Western leader ever to visit Xinjiang after President Erdogan of Turkey. And it was extraordinary to see him there. And it was very much seen now as the apogee of this sort of kowtow approach. But since then, the EU, as Gideon mentioned, which has signed this investment agreement with China, whereas the UK is hardening up its position. I still think, though, that Johnson will, in the end, find himself somewhere between the American position, what appears to be the emerging EU position on this, because ultimately the UK does want Chinese investment. And we've got Chinese investment going to the Hinkley Point power station, Chinese investment going into another nuclear power station planned at Sizewell. So it's going to be a big test of Boris Johnson's global Britain strategy here. And I don't think they've worked out where this should end up. You know, if you look at the flip-flopping on Huawei last year, where Johnson initially approved Huawei's involvement in 5G, and then under pressure from Donald Trump, reversed it. And Gideon, one symbol we saw this week, which is the favourite tabloid story whenever we look at UK-US relations, which is the bust of Winston Churchill. And we'll all remember that when Barack Obama became president, this bust was very famously moved out of the Oval Office, I think to an anteroom and replaced with a bust of Martin Luther King. And a lot of UK tabloids got very wound up by this and said that it was a symbol of the UK being snubbed by Barack Obama. Is there any symbol in what this means? That is obviously a fact the UK seems to care deeply about this. But on the other hand, the Biden team would have known in some slight way the reaction this would have caused. No, I mean, I think it's such a ridiculous story. It only becomes a story because of the British overreaction to it. And I think for once we got it right. You know, I don't know whether it's Johnson himself or his spokesperson saying, look, it's Biden's office. He can decorate it how he likes. The Churchill bust made sense in a certain context, which was, I think it dates back to the the Iraq war, actually, where George W. Bush was briefly entertaining Churchill-like fantasies about himself. But things have moved on, and I, I really don't think it should be seen as a snub. There may be snubs to come, but this isn't one of them. Yes, but I agree with Gideon. It's absolutely pathetic the way we attach so much significance to this bust. And the Americans just don't care. Now, let's have a look at what the Labour Party is doing, because obviously they are very eager to jump on Joe Biden's coattails too. And the fact that he managed to rebuild the so-called blue wall of Rust Belt stakes in Wisconsin, Michigan, those sort of things. That's something that the party is hopeful it can do in the UK. Lisa Nandy, the shadow foreign secretary, said this to Times Radio. We'll see a president in Joe Biden who is far more predictable. He will play a, a, a role on the world stage. He'll rejoin the World Health Organization. It won't be his major focus. He will look very much to stabilize the situation in the United States first. But nevertheless, this is undeniably good news for Britain and something that we need to change course rapidly if we're going to capitalize on. Well, Gideon, when you look at Keir Starmer and you look at Joe Biden, do you see them as potentially more natural bedfellows? In the sense that Johnson and Biden very much aren't natural bedfellows, yes. But I think, you know, they're different generations, so not necessarily. But I think you're right that they have a similar political task, which is to wing back a alienated, often white working class vote that they used to rely upon. And so I think that Labour will be looking pretty carefully at what Biden got right. Although, of course, The context is very different. Labour don't have the advantage of running against a figure who is as controversial and wacky as Donald Trump. Boris Johnson is a more conventional political figure. 
And some of the more specific issues around Brexit and so on don't really have a close American analogy. But broadly speaking, this question of how do you convince your old voter base that you've not drifted off into that word we heard earlier in the show, into a sort of woke metropolitan mindset that is very alien to them, that you still take their concerns seriously and that you're the right people to represent them. There is some analogy there. Indeed. And finally, George, this is something you always see that leaders of the opposition love to cozy up to US presidents. I can remember Ed Miliband's visit to Barack Obama in 2014, which became again a bit of a laughing stock when it was, was he going to get any kind of time? And he eventually had a meeting in the White House where the president then dropped in because they like to be seen as if they're latching on to the coming power thing. I think Gideon is right, though, that they do have some similarities and they're both quite moderate in their view of things. They're both a bit more low-key than their opponents. But in terms of their politics and what they're going to try and do, it feels as if there's not really not a huge amount of lessons, but there may be some strategic ones in winning back those lost voters. The Labour Party and the Democrats have a long historical connection. So obviously Keir Starmer will want to associate himself with Joe Biden, particularly given the problems that Joe Biden's had with Boris Johnson in the past. But Opposition leaders in Britain are often oversights, aren't they, in American politics? I'm just about old enough to remember when Neil Kinnock was desperately seeking a meeting with Ronald Reagan, and that didn't work out very well. But yes, I mean, look, Gideon's touched on the main points here, that to get back into power in the UK, the Labour Party will have to learn some of the lessons the Democrats have put into practice in America. That is, you focus on the things that your voters really care about. The economy, you've got to look strong on national defence, you've got to look patriotic, you've got to be tough on crime, as Tony Blair proved beyond any doubt. You can't let any doubt open up in people's minds that you might be in favour of the rioters rather than the police. You have to do a lot of things which maybe aren't necessarily in your instincts as a left of centre politician. But in the end, you can't get sidetracked by culture war issues. You can't get drawn into things that people in the real world aren't really talking about. You've got to focus on the issues that people in the Red Wall or the Rust Belt states in America talking about. And I think that's the principal lesson that uh, Keir Starmer will learn from the Biden victory. George and Gideon, thank you. The UK fully left the EU three weeks ago, with trade now governed by a 1,200-page deal that was rapidly pulled together at the end of 2020. While Brexit has dropped down the main political agenda in Westminster due to the coronavirus pandemic, there have been some troubles as expected. The most concerning issue has been trade in Northern Ireland, where supply chains appear to be under great strain and some have even collapsed due to the complexities of this new regime. Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, told the BBC, however, this was not necessarily due to the Brexit deal. I think actually there's a few different things that have come together in this. The point about empty shelves, that's something actually we've seen across other parts of the UK as well. Nothing to do with leaving the EU, nothing to do with the Northern Irish protocol, but actually to do with some of the challenges we saw with COVID at the port of Dover just before Christmas and the impact that had on supply lines coming through. I have to say supermarket supply lines at the moment are in in good fettle. Well, Pete Foster, our in-house Brexit guru, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Given what you heard from Brandon Lewis there and given how rapidly the deal was struck, how has it gone down compared to what you thought before it was done? And I think in the Northern Ireland context, We've seen pretty much what we expected, given the levels of stockpiling. You know, Brandon Lewis is kind of half right here. There have been some Brexit hiccups, but, you know, not quite as bad as some of the stronger, you know, belly aching you've had out of the DUP, the Ian Paises of this world, who want Article 16 triggered, want the whole thing to be put aside. 
The real problem, I think, with Northern Ireland is the one coming down the tracks, which is that the EU gave the UK a three-month holiday grace period on these export health certificates, which are both complicated but also require a lot of vet capacity. And that expires on April the 1st. And what you've seen from the supermarkets, you know, who represent about 75% of the retail in Northern Ireland for food, saying, you know, if the EU doesn't show more flexibility, then when that holiday ends on April the 1st, things are going to get very sticky indeed. Well, that's something to look forward to. Anna Yazetska, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have a real trade expert on. What's your view of how the trade deal has bedded in? Because this thing was pulled together at such a rapid pace at the end of 2020 that no parliamentarians in the UK had time to properly scrutinise it. And EU parliamentarians are still going through it. And the fact is it's still very much bedding in on the ground. Basically, everything's happening at the same time. So one issue is the fact that if you speak to companies, if you speak to holders, no one actually had time to look at that deal. I mean, it was published you know, a week before, but we've also had the end of the transition period, changing from not having any borders to actually having borders, not having any formalities to having quite a few formalities. That was something that we actually weren't ready. It's not even just the deal, it's just the fact that we weren't actually ready for the end of the transition period. And this is why we're seeing so many issues pop up here and there. For example, everything we see around rules of origin. Well, Peter, you and I all know, speaking to our contacts in the cabinet office, that at the heart of government, this has always been their biggest fear, that they've warned for years and months that the end of the transition period would be at this date and you need to be ready for it. And the government has claimed it's tried to do its best to be ready, but it couldn't force businesses to be ready for this. And do you agree with Anna that actually that has been the biggest issue, not the government preparedness, but individuals? There has to be the same thing. The the government likes to draw up flow diagrams and flow charts and it pumps them out from its Whitehall headquarters. But, you know, if you run a big business, you know how hard it is to drive change through the business. And if you look at the error rates that parcel companies and courier companies are seeing on paperwork, they're incredibly high, even from companies who thought they were prepared. So one of the things that's interesting I've been hearing is companies who think they've got their paperwork straight, they get their barcode that gets them on the boat at Dover and gets them into Calais, are still stuck in Calais for two days, getting their health documents in order. Because one little discrepancy on one consignment in a lorry containing lots of consignments grinds the whole thing to a halt. So the government's been pretty disingenuous about this, that, well, we're prepared, we had it all lined up without paying any respect to the fact that getting normal people who drive things, who move things, who make things to ingest all these processes that are phenomenally complex. You know, you look at some of those forms, there are 50,000 commodity codes on chief, 147 of them, for example, cover wine. You need a different code for whether the wine is above or below 13% alcohol by volume. If you put the wrong code in, you're defrauding the government. It's incredibly complicated. And, and, you know, Michael Gove is a master of standing at the dispatch box and saying we had it all ready and all the rest of it. But, you know, I don't think it's fair on business. It really isn't. Well, John Martin, who heads up the Road Haulage Association's policy side in Northern Ireland, told the BBC that the customs procedures weren't very effective. And even some of the customs agents that we do have are not competent to do the job because they've been recruited towards the latter part of last year and there's been insufficient training or time provided to enable those staff to be trained. 
Well, Anna, there is this question that once these customs agents do get trained up properly and businesses are more aware, will things bed down? Because we have seen a lot of reports that actually companies are just going to pull out essentially of Northern Ireland or pull out of delivery and supply chain. For a lot of businesses, they might as well just give up and engage with this new regime. Yes, the paperwork is complicated, especially if it's around health certificates for animal and plant products. However, that can become slightly simpler over time as we have more agents, we have more capacity. But leaving the single market and leaving the customs union means that some forms of supply chain, some, some businesses will no longer be possible. One example would be the um, UK being a distribution hub. Something like this is no longer makes sense from a business perspective. Businesses always try to find the path of least resistance. So whenever I speak to businesses now, you know, one of the question is, can you supply your EU customers from the EU? Do you have to bring these goods into the UK? Yes, it's still technically possible and it's going to get easier to get these goods into the UK, but it is just so much easier to transport goods from the EU to the Republic of Ireland without having to invoice for the UK or, or deal with the UK uh, at all. And just to add very quickly on this readiness issue, if you remember the last couple of months of, of last year, everything was coming out at the same time. Everything was being published at the same time. We had, I think, a Monday, it was Monday before Christmas, where pretty much all the guidance was published, all the statutory instruments were published. It was published, it was available but wasn't available with enough time for businesses to actually read it, understand it and apply it. Well, Anna, one of the other areas that's caused some concern since the Brexit trade deal was signed was the UK's music industry. They're particularly unhappy about all the paperwork and the need to apply for visas when they're heading out on touring, when touring is allowed again. And obviously, the UK's music industry is a huge industry, much bigger than fishing. It's a bit of a blame game that's been going on with the UK saying, well, we asked for visa-free travel, the EU said no. And the EU said, well, we offered something and the UK said no. What's going on here? And again, how can this be resolved? I would just say that there are a number of these areas, not just the music industry. We have these stories that capture people's attention. However, I think there's much more of that to come in the future. I think it's a question of not necessarily understanding of what changes come as a result of the government's decision to opt for a simple trade deal. I think when this was announced over a year ago, there were a number of industries that raised concerns and said, well, we cannot operate under these conditions. They were then told, as everyone else was, that this is project fear and that everything will be fine and the deal will solve all the issues. Now, when the deal obviously came, that's not necessarily the case. Certain things are just not possible if you're outside the single market and the customs union. Sebastian, you raise the question, as does the industry, how can this be resolved as if it's sort of somehow an unintended consequence of the deal that Johnson did? But the Brexit deal he did doesn't contain a mobility chapter. There's no free movement of people. That means that a musician who wants to perform in a European country has to conform with the individual visa regimes for performing artists in that country. It's going to be the same for fashion models. It's going to be the same for you know people who work as hairstylists on movie sets, makeup artists, or any service professional. And this hasn't come to light because COVID, we're all banned from traveling, aren't we? But people are going to find this is the deal that Johnson signed. It doesn't build back better. It builds back borders. You know, we're going back to 1992. Reams of paperwork to do really basic things, to lob a pallet of something into the back of a van and whip it over the channel. You know, it's interesting to still see industry pushing for fixes and it's not what I hear on the EU side. You know, Anna raised the point about 
rules of origin, whereby you have to prove your good is roughly 50% UK made for it to qualify for zero tariff. And goods are coming into the UK, and they can't then bounce back out again into the EU, can't hub out of the UK. You know, the industry was sort of saying that that's an unintended consequence, can't we get a fix? And the EU's going, well, no, that's what you signed. You know, you wanted a Canada-style deal, and you've got one, so you better learn to live with it. And so I think, you know, we're still moving through the stages of grief at the moment, uh, and there's going to have to be quite a lot of more of sort of facing of facts that actually this is the deal that we've done. And yes, there are joint committees to manage the deal, but they're not there to renegotiate it. And, you know, with the possible exception of Northern Ireland, where there's a kind of quite strong political case for more flexibility, you know, I think there's going to be quite a, a tough learning curve. However, with some issues, like potentially the rules of origin uh, one, we could have seen a different approach. And it's still quite surprising to me why certain things haven't been achieved or haven't been done or haven't been agreed. But there are certain things where you could see a quick fix or you could have something that would not change drastically the situation, but could perhaps make it slightly easier, even something as simple as uh, electronic health certificates. Well, finally, Peter, when you look at how things are going to move forward, we perhaps saw a symbol of the slightly petty place we're still at with this row that happened this week over the EU's mission slash diplomatic headquarters in London, depending on your phrase, and the UK refusing to acknowledge it as an ambassador's residence here. What is all that about, really? So this is a row which actually we reported in the FT back in May, where the British government was not prepared to recognise or grant full diplomatic recognition to the EU delegation in London. And I assumed, actually, when we broke that story, Seb, that it was really just to get a kind of bit of negotiating leverage, you know, just to kind of needle Michelle Barnier a little bit. But now we've got into January, we've got a deal, and the British government is still refusing to give full diplomatic recognition, which is infuriating Brussels, because when we were member states, we pushed for all of those EU missions, which were created when the EU created its foreign policy arm, we pushed to make sure that they were fully recognised. And there's, I think, one more dimension to this, which is that, yes, it's a sort of silly spat, but it's also plays into this uh, future relationship in Washington. The last major country that tried to play this game and downgrade the European Union ambassador was Donald Trump's administration. Barack Obama had given full recognition and Donald Trump quietly tried to downgrade the ambassador to Washington and he backed down. But at a moment where Boris Johnson is trying to shake off the Britain-Trump moniker, it seems extraordinary to me that they should be playing a game, you know, that so clearly echoes what Trump did. But it's interesting, you know, I The Brookings Institution, one of their policy guys was saying, you know, that actually the Biden administration sees a kind of tripod, a a three-legged stool of the UK, the EU and the US, which would be great, right? Because it would give the UK almost equal weight to the EU. And this is exactly the kind of move that is going to unsteady that stool. So we'll see if we get a climb down. But for now, FCO, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you know, digging in. So, uh, uh, you know, interesting times ahead for global Britain. Well, Peter and Anna, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You know where to find us. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it. And you can receive episodes as soon as they're released. You can also leave us some good ratings or send us in your feedback. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.